This is Limit Up, the show where we explore markets, strategies, and trading psychology so that you can take your trading to the next level. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Limit Up podcast presented by Top Step Trader, which also goes by the name of the 144th most popular investment podcast in the business category on iTunes, which is great. I'm Jack Pelzer. I'm joined today by not Dan Hodgman. I am joined by Kelsey Snyder. Hi, Kelsey. How are you doing? Hey, I'm good. How are you? Hey, uh, Kelsey, everyone, is our affiliate manager here at Top Step Trader. And she's filling in for Dan because he uh, left us very uh, quickly and with little notice to get on a train because it was snowing. So he really left us out to dry there, right? Yeah, I was uh, I was worried how you were going to end that. It sounded like he was a uh, he passed away. <laughs> no, Dan Dan did not pass away. Dan's still very much alive. Yep, you know, thank God to the chagrin of his enemies. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so another high in the markets and another high in the coronavirus. Uh, Kelsey, you had something that was close to the coronavirus, right? Yep, had a hundred and three, almost a hundred and four degree fever this week. Uh, oh yeah, so like as I was saying, like what do you win if you get a hundred and four degree fever? Death. Death. Yeah, that's yeah. what you're wishing for. Yeah, coma or death. Mm-hmm. Well, what we're wishing for is to build on this a little bit. Um, this is the first time we've broke the 150 mark in the podcast rankings for investing. I know it sounds like a small accomplishment, but, you know, it means a lot to me. So uh, be sure to go out there and subscribe and rate everything. And, um, you know, we'll go up there and mess up the planet money people at some point. We'll step on their skulls on our way to uh, the top of this mountain. That sound good, Kelsey? Yes, perfect. Let's do it. I've got my boots on and everything. Nice. Yeah, so today we're going to be having a great interview with someone you might know, Mr. Matt Murningham. The best and the tallest in the office. He is very tall. He has great hair. Mm -hmm. He also worked at a number of prop firms uh, before he became a front-end developer. So we're going to talk about how to go about getting jobs at prop firms and what the process is once you start there. So eh, I hope they find it kind of interesting. Absolutely will. Yeah, it was kind of a long conversation. So I say we uh, just get it started. And uh, everyone, please enjoy our limited interview between me and the real Dan Hodgman and Matt Murningham. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our Limit Up interview. Today, we're joined by a very good friend at Top Step, very good friend of the show, very good friend of Dan and I's, Mr. Matt Murningham who I've never called that because you go by... Mern. That's right. We're feeling the Mern today. <laughs> yeah, too many consonants in my name. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I, you know, I was looking at your last name when you sent the email, sort of the prep for this episode, and I thought your last name was Merningham. <laughs> I thought it was until, like, I thought that was his last name until you just said it, and I almost was going to go, you said that wrong. Are we going to have to edit this out? <laughs> yeah, no. It's uh, it, You were close. It's Murnahan. Murnahan. Oh, yeah, yeah, Silent yeah, so. G. Okay. Yeah, Silent G. What is that? Irish, Scottish, Irish, Irish and yeah, Irish and their G's, yeah. their G's. Shaughnessy. It's all all evil, evil stuff. <laughs> I'm Irish, so I can say that. Yeah. I was gonna say this is just a room of Irishmen. <laughs> so my last name is Welsh. Oh, oh well, we know what they are up to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Matt, um, why don't to start? Let's say what you're doing right now, and then we'll get into why we have you here. Yeah. What 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 do you do right now, Matt? I am currently a front-end engineer on our tech team here at Top Step Trader. So, uh, yeah, I get to create awesome graphics for our users uh, across 
all of our web uh, properties, our futures app, FX app, and some of our CMS sites. Did you have any role played in removing Footman off the website? Ooh, there was a lot of debate about that, and <laughs> I, 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 I'm not sure that I made any of the decisions, but I, I did help uh, take take him down. Yeah, you just took a, down Footman. FYI, yeah. for any listeners out there who aren't occasionally on the Top Step website, for years and years we had this god awful stock photo as the banner <laughs> across the homepage of some <laughs> some some like uh, bleached hair goofball like so, trading on a laptop without shoes on i'll give a background into the picture it was a photoshop picture so it was someone else's head on a on a photo on a uh stock image and there was a lot of debate around if there was a wart on his foot <laughs> yeah the bare feet was really really <laughs> off-putting he, he for looked some like people. he was in like the band the everclear see the funny <laughs> the funny thing that frustrated me about the whole thing had nothing to do with who it was and his relaxation he was on a mac I know a lot of people use Macs, but if you're a real trader, like if you grew up in this, you don't use a Mac. Like no plat, no trading platforms were designed at a Mac. That was like my biggest frustration the whole time for years looking at that image. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so Matt, since uh, this is uh, a show about markets, futures, forex, <laughs> and not about web design <laughs> or app design, yeah, would you elaborate perhaps the further reason why you might be here today mm, as a yeah. guest? Uh yeah, so I for my started my career as a as a prop trader as a derivatives trader, and did it for eight years. Yeah, so what I thought we could talk about today, just to frame the episode out for everyone, is we have a lot of experts on this show, and by nature of being an expert, they have twenty, thirty plus years of experience in the industry, which means they tended well, definitely started at a very different time. So the process to getting a job in what we'd call prop shop, was very different in the 70s and 80s than it was. So, uh, Mern, I think we're basically the same age. We're both in our early 30s. Yep. We'll call it the early 30s. Sure. I'm about to turn 33. Nice. Still, still counts as early. Yeah. Um, that it was starting after the recession or during the recession, you know, with the rise of computers and HFT, high-speed lines, algorithmic trading. It's a very different game. So I thought today uh, it might be interesting to talk about how people can go about getting jobs at prop shops, what the interview process looks like, what the uh, – there's certain hoops that make you jump through and stuff like that, and also what it looks like working at a prop shop, starting out, et cetera. And that will be – we could do a couple episodes on this, yeah, but uh, no it would be a good place to start. So um, – First off, I think it's a good question for everyone. So did you start trading uh, right after school? No. I actually um, wanted to be a lawyer, uh, went, to, went to school, uh, studied economics and political science, and thought I wanted to be a lawyer. But as you were saying, um, kind of graduated in 2008 when the world was uh, on the brink of collapse, financially speaking. a time then. Yeah, um, which actually made me want to get directly into trading um, because it seemed like an opportune time to – you know, try my yeah, hand Yeah, it was a very different time. I, too, was in college. I did economics and music technology no way. in college. Yeah, I was a music man, uh, math econ guy. And um, when I started college, it was like in 2005. And it was very much then, like if you're in economics, there's like tons of jobs. You do economics, you get a job at a consulting firm or an iBank, and like they're there. That's what happens. Mm -hmm. You work 80, 90 hours a week. You kind of grind away and uh, you're relying on other people. Sun up to sundown. Yeah, that was the dream. I was eighteen. I was a stupid, <laughs> stupid little boy. 
Anyway, what uh, happened was then 2008 came and uh, there were no more jobs than that. Yeah. But at least in my path, because uh, I was from the Chicago area, I knew some things about trading and they were hiring for trading because uh, there was a wee bit of volatility. A little bit. A little bit. Yeah. So you wanted to be a lawyer, but you did, did you ever like apply to law school or? Yeah. My first job out of college was at a law firm. Hated it. Um, and <laughs> where our offices were uh, right across, well, down the block on LaSalle Street from the Board of Trade. So that's kind of how it started. I've never met a young lawyer who's ever been like, yeah, my first job. <laughs> Sweet. Yeah. Right. No, my so sister's it's... in her third year or second year as an attorney right now. And my phone call with her the other day was, God, work is miserable right now. I'm like, yeah. Works pretty great for me. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, for sure. The lifestyle and also just curiosity of of markets. I mean, it, it seemed it seemed uh So had you traded it all before on your own? Yeah, just small stuff and kind of a TD Ameritrade. Account. What got you just into decades. trading though, just in general when you go back to then? What made you want to get to get a TD Ameritrade account? Yeah, just just curiosity. I think that reading uh, you know, reading about what was going on in the world at the time really kind of I didn't fully understand it. I don't think anybody really fully understands it, but uh I think that really was the catalyst for me, uh, starting the TD Ameritrade account and then leaving the law firm job and and getting we're very similar people. I too, I had a brokerage account through Fidelity, not TD Ameritrade, and proceeded. Uh, you know, I'd heard it all my life. You just, you know, you go long stocks, everything will be okay. Um, <laughs> look for points of value. You're like Warren Buffett. I see Bear Stearns at forty dollars. This stock was at 80-something dollars. It's been around for 100 years. I'm like, this is the steal of the century. Right. I proceeded to lose my brokerage account. Mm -hmm. Then I worked an internship at a, fall, at a smaller financial firm where they were like looking for like certain picks or hedges or whatever to do. And I bought uh, AIG puts mm. and made a ton of money, yeah. unfortunately for them. So then I was like, <laughs> all right. This is, you know, bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> I did I need to be able to trade both ways. So that's what got me into the idea of trading. So it's it's funny, my whole world, I come from it from such a different background. We're all the same age. Yet for me, trading started when I was 15, 16 years old and I never had a brokerage account. I traded on a prop firm trading account and it's just it's funny how the the world's different and how everyone gets into this industry so different. That's what I find so amazing about this because, like Jack, you alluded to in the very mm -hmm. beginning, seventies, eighties, nineties, trading. Everyone got into trading the exact same way. It's all about who you know. The trading floor was a giant group of people who somehow had connections to each other. You never heard a guy that said, "Well, I got on." I got on Monster and I found a job to clerk on the trading floor. That was never a thing. It was so my my dad. Oh, he's nephew. <laughs> right? My my dad my yeah. dad had a buddy who gave me a shot to get on the floor, and that's where I got. That's how I that's how I started out. And so I I can't wait to hear more about how you were able to dive into this thing and become a professional trader. This is be very different, um, I imagine. <laughs> um. Craigslist. It wasn't Monster. It was Craigslist. <laughs> yeah. Prop. There were like three or four prop firms that were at like including at, Top Step Trader, I believe. Really? Yeah. yeah. So I, I mean, think, it was well. That was probably little little later. Top Step Trader was on there. Yeah. So found uh, three or four firms that had post job postings on Craigslist and just sent my resume to all four, three, three of them, and uh, yeah, heard back from two, and uh, yeah, interviewed at one of them. And that's where. What's that interview process like in the very beginning? Uh, it was actually no, uh, it was no phone screen. It was just emails, uh, back and forth. And then in on site, uh, which was a verbal, like kind of a ver verbal math test sitting across the table from four people 
uh, they asked me to make a market on the windows of the uh, CBOE. So, <laughs> you know, bid an offer on how many windows are on the, that had, had side. Beautiful mind, like, just come out. I have no idea. Uh, no, <laughs> 2000, I think, yeah. Oh, okay. But uh, maybe it was in their head because it was, I was stunned because I, you know, was like, oh my gosh, make a market on this. Like, I, I don't know. Yeah, and I'm like starting to count windows in my head. I'm like, oh man. Um, and then they asked me to do some simple, uh, like simple math, op, you know, math operations. Uh, I think like squaring, squaring numbers off the top of my head. No oh, sorry, I'm an idiot. Making a market on Windows. Yeah, like the number okay. of windows oh, yeah, so on the count- building. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I you thought said he was drawing, drawing on the, the window. Like, here's mind. a Sharpie, draw <laughs> on the window. <laughs> I, I was zoned out there that, for a I second. Yeah, that would have been a crazy interview. So yeah. just got up and started doing I'm that. sitting here and I'm just trying to think in my head. I'm like, man, what would that mar- What was the market you gave it? Do you remember? Oh, man. I mean, I think it was like 400, at 500 or <laughs> yeah, something. Yeah, that's one of those. I, like, I didn't say it like that because I didn't, you know. It's, it's like one of those case studies I ask for a lot of like consulting, eye banking, et cetera. You know, how many ping pong balls can you fit in the 747? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so you got one of those jobs? Yeah. So that was the first part of the interview process. The second was uh, I had to come back in and take a uh, written math test that was more of like expected returns. And I think there was like a Fibonacci sequence question. Um, So stuff like that. And then they had me write up just an Excel macro. Okay. I actually found mine... Like I was applying to a bunch of – I was interviewing a bunch of trading firms. I never went through the floor thing. So I was tra- – uh, the screen firms. And um, I did like three rounds of interviews at uh, the place I was at. I don't know. Maybe we'll name it at some point. Figure it out. Um, but they had us take a nine-question math test in the first round that was like, you know, those crazy brain teasers type things. So – and they really – thought about those scores. I think that's pretty common in all of the prop trading world is like if you're applying for jobs that are expect to be tested or ask all sorts of weird um, cognitive, like how you're thinking questions. So anyway. Yeah. Well, to keep up parallel here, I'll tell you how different it can be. For me, when I got my start, I was clerking on the floor and um, the hedger was out. So I, th- I had to throw on the headset. He had to go to the bathroom. Oh, man. And he was gone. And all of a sudden- all of a sudden, um, volatility spikes and auction release, and I'm on the headset, and I'm getting yelled at from four, diff- four different guys. All right, I'm a 15 Delta. I bought 50. Okay, so I'm trying to figure out how am I hedging this thing. And then I got another guy. I'm a 100 Delta, and I bought 20. I'm a 65 Delta, and I sold 30. So I'm trying to run all this math in my head, and I just, okay, well, instinct says you got to buy and sell some bonds right now. So I do the math pretty quickly and I figured it out and uh, I kept I stayed on the headset all afternoon and after that they came down and said okay you're staying on a headset you're getting your own system and uh, now start learning how to quote markets and arb the pit. Nice. That's awesome. well, that'll that'll teach that guy to be trying to take a, a deuce during a bond yeah. auction. <laughs> <laughs> right? Did he ever come back or did he just Yeah, he did. He did. So <laughs> I uh <laughs> he stayed on, he ended up moving into the pit. And so instead of hedging four I hedged five and then and then I had to start then I had to start figuring out how to make the market how to start mm-hmm. quoting and uh, I had a then I started learning how to arb the pit nice. so mine was I think it's just funny I kind of was I'm with the same age but I went in around the older the older way of getting into the floor and so no one's ever asked me math questions they said okay if you're gonna you know with volatility here and this is what's happening tell us what you think 
Just do it. Just go do it. You just have to figure it out. Learning on the fly. Right? Market's the best teacher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you uh, get an offer or whatever from this place, right? Um, you know, let's talk a little bit about getting started, what it's like starting in a prop shop and sort of kind of uh, what the uh, pay structure and stuff is like. You know, might as well. Yeah. Yeah. So it was uh, – I believe it was $500 a week. Um, to start and then a discretionary bonus bonus based on performance. And I came in as a, as a clerk um, for a little bit. And so, yeah, that was basically the pay structure, no benefits. It was all, you know, 1099, uh, just hustle, learn to make money and, uh, you know, go from there pretty much. That's the first, first job I remember just being super excited that uh, they were paying me to basically learn, you know, how to trade. So, so on that point, because I think it's really interesting, Every everyone that gets into this, they have that something kind of influenced their style, their systems, the way they trade. Then this company start to give you one person that's going to mentor you and educate you and put you through, um, kind of put you through the paces? Or did you just kind of start to learn from a whole team? Yeah. So it was, it started out as learning from a whole team. We had market makers and then some people that were hedging and running other strategies upstairs on, on, uh, computers. Um, and so it's kind of a little bit of a rotation where you, you know, you'd be in the pit for a little bit and then you would go shadow upstairs with the, the hedgers. Um, after about six months, uh, I kind of, uh, fell under, uh, a woman who became kind of like my, my mentor. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. And now, uh, I guess we're we're almost at like a hues here of like three different ways. So Dan, you had the full floor experience of getting started. Oh yeah, Mern, you're like I didn't know that you were getting paid at like ten ninety nines and stuff. Oh yeah, that's all, wild. All, all yeah, clerks, yeah. all clerks. If you were running on the floor, chances are you were ten ninety nine because it's a heck of a lot cheaper. You, they don't have to provide benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, so you see a lot of these clerks they'll run, that are running around trade checkers. They are under an LLC of their own. So they, they run their own LLC. So like my trade checker, she had her own LLC and that's what got paid. She didn't get paid directly. Should have done that. That's, right. that's pretty smart. That's so, what a lot of them. That's what the professional trade checkers do. Oh, man. So <laughs> at the other, I guess, end of the spectrum is so when I started the place, we didn't call ourselves clerks. We were called trading assistants or night guys. Mm. That night guy thing becomes very important from what I'm about to say. <laughs> but it was very it's very different. So I was at a firm that when I started, I was probably the 50th employee. And at some point a couple of years later, it had um, maybe 300 employees. So it's a, it, I was at a very big, by prop shop standards, prop shop. And so you we, were like a factory. Yeah. Your, your, your shop Huge. was like a factory. His is like that traditional prop almost. One thing I will give credit – I guess I could even say like what the firm is it's not around anymore. It was Chopper Trading. Mm-hmm. Um, what I will say was super nice about Chopper is that um, it wasn't a like a meat house. Like when you when you say there's two ways of factory. It could be like a big factory or you're like churning out people that reject. Oh, they I hired, didn't, yeah, I didn't yeah. mean it. In so that there sense. there are places that there are pretty big prop shops out there that will hire you on, let you trade one or two contracts. And allow 80% of the people to drop out within the first couple of months. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, like, that was, it was rare that someone that was like a trading assistant or night guy at Chopper would probably like 80, 90% of the people eventually got their own accounts. The reason though is because they need it. So we were trading treasury spreads, which 
trade around the clock, basically. So you needed night coverage. So we really were night guys. I had one week where I was there on the days. And then they like, all right, coming at 5 p.m. Fr- uh, Sunday. And then there was like a guy six months ahead of me and a guy six months ahead of him. And that's where we just, you were just trading live people's accounts overnight already. And I did that for, you know, a year to a year and a half of working nights. And then you got your own account. Nights so are rough. Nights they couldn't are very really, rough. They couldn't afford. Yeah. Oh, Annie is stopping by to take a picture of us right now. We can leave this in the podcast. Hello, Annie. Oh. I'm here for pictures. Yeah, we're just going to take okay. one quick picture. I okay. think we're going to leave this in the podcast, too. So <laughs> Everybody say smile. Hey, Annie. All right, one more. Cool. Be sure Enjoy to get the talk. shoes. Thank you, Annie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so anyway, part of the reason there wasn't that huge attrition is because you were uh, SOL if you didn't have a night guy. So they didn't want to get rid of the night guy. Some people ended up failing once they had their own accounts. So I did a year, year and a half of nights, but it was salary and health insurance. Not a good one, mm-hmm. <laughs> but <laughs> nonetheless, n- nonetheless, it's, m- Better than 500 bucks a week. And then it was a discretionary bonus mm-hmm. for the uh, night guys and clerks. Um, yeah, so that's a little bit different. Yeah. So what was the – so how long was your sort of clerkship before you started? Yeah, so it was um, – you know, still had to go and take the take the CME test uh, to get on a badge. Oh, that's still, fun, isn't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I think that was probably – I was clerking for around six months and then uh, started making markets. Um Right after that, inside of the uh, Crush Options and Futures Pit, which is no longer uh, around. Talk about the Crush Options for us. I, people have probably heard a lot about them, don't yeah. know too much about them, but it's an interesting market to say the least. Yeah. So the the Crush contract is essentially mimicking the the um, process of taking soybeans and creating the byproducts, meal and oil. And it was a way for big grain companies to hedge uh, their risk. And it was an incredible pit to be in because it was one-way paper flow, which was basically all of the uh, large grain processors had to sell. Um, so they had just they could they stacked stacked orders and distributed them around to different brokers, um, which was great because the crush contract was not on Globex at the time, which created this huge arbitrage opportunity that this firm really it, it, you know exploited and succeeded at just uh, taking. Um, and so the ratios were weird. Uh, it was 11 by nine by 10. So 11 meal to nine soybean oil to 10 beans. And the price was basically, um, the cost of crushing soybeans into the, into the byproducts. So you make a good point. And I, I want to bring this up so people kind of understand you hear a lot of times traders talking about the old days before screens showed up. Right now, you get to, you're talking about trading the crush, which was one way, no glowbacks. It was pit mm-hmm. only. Yeah. And so, you guys, when two o'clock came, you were done. Or no, what time? Grain pits close yeah, it was, at it was one fifteen. One fifteen. Excuse me. Yeah. So you guys are done at one fifteen. You're rushing down to series to get a seat. And so, a lot of times we we talk about like being flat at the end of the day or if you're carrying positions you know you have to be diligent you have to be on top of that this is the old way in a new era of trading essentially that time comes to 115 comes you you yeah. get to be done and then when you get to talk about arbing we got to dive into arbing a little bit because that's a, a riot let's dive yeah. into that next the very first thing i want to say is once again 
uh, vocab for our listeners. If you don't know, Ceres is the bar <laughs> on the first floor of the Chicago Board of Trade that is famous for having the strongest drinks in the universe, as far as I can tell. I mean, they give you, you order a Jack and Coke, they give you a rocks glass filled to the brim with whiskey and a can of Coke. Yeah, uh, if you're Coke ever in Chicago, on the side. Yeah. yeah. Coke on the side, it's uh, probably the cheapest drink you'll get in Chicago, too. Um, you just have to get there early because happy hour line usually starts at about three o'clock and, uh, and starts wrapping around the hallway of the building, the board of trade. So you got to get there early um, and you can't, you have to have your whole party. If not, they won't let you save those wow. seats for too long. Yeah. Then uh, if you're doing a little Chicago board of trade bar crawl, you can stop by Skyride after that. Or yep. Skyride's Billy a good Goat's one. gone now. <laughs> Oh, anyway, we, that's a fun aside. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So let's uh, – the R being between the st- screens and the pit. I'm going to let you guys flush this out because cool. you're more familiar with it. So and you hear it from a lot of different people when it comes to R-being. Matter of fact, I think uh, last week we had uh, we had my dad in here. He's not a big fan of guys that arb the pit. Mm. He was a pit trader. Yep. He was not a fan of these guys because they were taking his orders and they sure. they weren't stepping up in the pit. I, on the other hand, I think it's a great opportunity to exploit good opportunities. So how did you guys go about doing it? Yeah. I mean, simply, it's yeah. simply put, but. Yeah. And I'm on, I'm on your side uh, of the, of the arbing the pit. I think that's our age talking. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. And a lot of that reason too, is because Globex didn't have a crush contract until I think 2010. Um, there was no really other way to lay off that risk other than going to Globex and legging it out. So like, going to the meal, oil, and bean um, markets individually, and then just you know, uh, basically taking the opposite side of whatever your position is. Um, I think that it, was, it worked out really well for them because the crush pit was so small uh, that there were only a few players in it, and you had a lot of, a lot of volume because it was the only place where you could, where you could get off a lot of size for these um, big ag companies to, to hedge. Um, and then we would actually – I was never – allowed to really go to series because I had to be on at 7 p.m. to kind of <laughs> uh, look at our inventory of, of crush positions and um, kind of, you know, help this manage is a crush option. You're, you're, you're managing the options. This side, was right? so, yeah. So we, most of our inventory was futures. Uh, the crush options market was even smaller. Um, and that, I think there were really like only two or three players in it. Um, and we would uh, take those and kind of, yeah, use the futures as, Hedging, delta hedging. Yeah. yeah did, you, did you really manage a, a busted options book? Yeah, yeah, that was wild. So it was a wheat, it was a wheat options book, and this guy, 2008, massive. Like the, I think I don't know that wheat prices have ever reached the levels that they were at in 2008. And 2009, uh, one of our one of the traders <laughs> just decided to buy the rogue. Premium. Oh, you're talking about the rogue oh, trader, that yeah. MF Global guy, right? Or no, no, there was another one apparently. Oh. <laughs> What is with these wheat traders? They they seem like mild mannered people, and then they really have a appetite for destruction. Yeah, <laughs> we actually have a wheat trader in the office, Mick. Really? Mick? Yeah, Mick's oh, been man. on here. He's he came. He grew up in the wheat, soy and corn, uh, soybeans and corn pits. I think his dad was in the wheat pit as well. Really? Oh yeah. yeah so give us the down and dirty, man. Yeah. So it was uh it was pretty wild. So he kept buying options premium and never decided to hedge it with futures. Um, and volatility just collapse in 2009 because it wasn't, you know, prices just tanked and it was back to basically normal, normal levels. Right. Um, Real quick, when you talk about premium here, 
people are buying premium, they're essentially buying high volatility. When volatility drops, that's where they lose money. So when you say hedging, I'm just trying to clarify things yeah. here. When you hedge your premium or you start to sell your futures or however you're doing, whatever way you're hedging, you're covering your risk for the inevitable moment volatility drops. Once that volatility drops and maybe you're buying back some of your 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 futures position to keep what we like to call delta neutral, delta neutral, delta is basically the risk you have on at a certain strike price. And so that's how you get to manage your book and you can manage your risk and carry bigger positions like uh, Mern's talking about here. Yeah. So that involved uh, a lot of sending, actually using a broker in the wheat options pit um, to take, you know, to try to get back towards Delta neutral, uh, but also a lot of um, gamma, gamma scalping. A lot of gamma scalping. Yeah. To kind of make up for the uh, losses and premiums that we were incurring every day. So just out of curiosity, I mean, when you were looking at your your deltas and your gammas, what what kind of levels were you guys seeing? Oh man, I you know what I I don't remember. I mean, they probably have to be off the chart. In two thousand nine, if volatility dropped like crazy in all of oh eight, he buys premium. Yeah, I don't remember at all. How long did it? Were you ever able to get this thing back to neutral? Yeah. It took about three months almost, and he was buying long, like pretty far out. I think he was buying, you know, end of the year type options in like the beginning of two thousand nine for like a decent expiration. So like very expensive, um, but fortunately we had a lot of time. Um, right. So it, we did kind of. I ended up managing a lot of the a lot of the futures and got it in three months down to a spot where it was it was it was passed off to some someone else. So for perspective people, we're talking getting delta neutral took 3 months. A typical let's just say a trader executes 5000 option contracts in a day and decides not to hedge that position once. It would typically take that person maybe 1 to 2 minutes to get delta neutral. So I'm thinking perspective here. This position is massive. That's a ton of work getting that back to neutral at three months and contracts expiring. You guys are having to roll throughout this move to Delta neutral. Yeah. Well done. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And I uh, hope our non-options traders out there didn't just. uh, Right. So trying to keep things in perspective. (laughs) Roll out of their cars onto a moving freeway. (laughs) I just have, I'm just getting flashbacks of getting calls from my boss at, you know, like 845 PM. Like what's going on? So it was, yeah. Yeah. It was fun. So this is where on the future side, bring it back to futures. This is where futures traders actually get to see a lot of opportunity um, because when people are, when an option does trade or a big big position in options do trade, that creates huge movement uh, and liquidity within the futures market. And so for me as a futures and options trader, when I'm trading strictly futures, I'm still watching that order flow on the options because it's telling me something's happening in the options and people now need to cover those positions. So Bringing it full circle back to those futures traders. Now we can get back in the car and keep rolling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, Mern. So it also uh, says here that you started, you know, doing some correlation trades on a Bloomberg terminal. Was that the same place? Yeah, same place. And they had just bought a Bloomberg terminal, which if you've ever, you know, told, totally different in the world. Kind of, kind of learned it, can get certified, all that good stuff. Um, 
And I was really always fascinated by, uh, at the time, on the, in, on the floor, you would hear outcries of uh, price action in different markets, right? Mm-hmm. So like at that time, equity index futures were just going, just going crazy, right? And you would start to, I would start to pick up on maybe order flow that would come into the pit after a huge move in the S&P. Um, and so what I kind of wanted to do was see if there was actually a relationship between the price action of the S&P uh, and something that we were interested in the grains. doesn't seem like a likely relationship, but uh, kind of used Bloomberg to explore those relationships. And uh, yeah, it turned out that there was uh, some unusual behavior at that time uh, between seemingly un related markets. There's all sorts of weird stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I was I was just listening to actually a guest we had on the show, uh Greg Zuckerman from the Wall Street Journal, um, just wrote a book on is it Jim Simons? Who's the guy who started Renaissance technology? Si- I think it's Simons. Simons. it's either Jim or Jeff Simons. But they were talking about how they revolutionized, you know, finding these odd patterns that people don't think of and then exploit them to huge. I think the example they used is like maybe, you know, traders, it'd be a simplistic one, but traders are selling some of their bonds on Friday a little bit because they don't want to take it into the weekend. And they would just um, find these patterns through computers and mathematical Mm. algorithms and stuff like that. So yeah. So why aren't you a billionaire? Yeah, no, I know. Jeez. (laughs) Oh, man. I just didn't have enough uh, scale. Uh, yeah, let's go with that. Answer. Yeah, and then uh, <laughs> I needed more money to yeah. make yeah. more money. Yeah, you need money to pay for that Bloomberg machine. What was the Seriously. Bloomberg subscription like? It was expensive. I think it's it's like three thousand dollars, two thousand dollars a month or something. I don't I don't know what it the was. Com- I, keyboard I, alone I is two hundred. Yeah, a month. Is just, it really? just for that just keyboard, keyboard no, I think yeah. is two hundred a month. It was. It's. I attempted to steal one, yeah. <laughs> bring it home with me, and they did you. They shut me down real quick. Oh, They're that, like, that's wait a how second, Mike Bloomberg can. Drop two hundred million on advertising. <laughs> all these, uh, all these commercials we're seeing. Yeah. So uh, something this makes sense because we are exactly the same age. It seems that uh, your first prop shop experience, you ran into the MF Global Buzzsaw. Uh, they, well, I'll let you explain this, and then I'll chime in on my experience with them. Sure. Um, so it was, yeah, it was during the European debt crisis. MF Global was uh, dipping into customer funds to, I believe finance their trades on that uh on that crisis i think it was i think it was halloween of 2011 where they declared bankruptcy or just basically froze their customers assets and we happened to clear through mf global um which meant that we didn't really have any uh capital to to trade with and i think it what's amazing is not even if you weren't trading through mf global other clearing firms started getting locked up yeah. because of money owed back and forth. That was that that MF Global situation. Um, looking back on it, you know, in the moment, everyone was like, "Ah, we'll be fine. Don't worry. We'll get through this." Mm-hmm. But truthfully, that that almost shut down the entire industry. That was that was a big fact. Once again, we had a yeah. limit up interview a few weeks ago with uh, the lawyer that actually um, went after Corzine for that. Oh, that's right. Yeah. No so I, I'm just quoting the podcast as much as possible. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, I, I read like a beginner SEO book and I think that's what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> yeah. Can you sure. vocally backlink? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so was that, that was the Limit Up podcast, right? Limit Up powered by Top Step Trader. Oh, fueled by Mountain Dew. Got it. Got it. Oh, yeah. Uh, do you um, – so, so was that sort of the end of that firm? You know what? Uh, it wasn't. Um, but they had to – 
that I mean, the writing was kind of on the wall and we, our strategies had to change a lot. I think that we couldn't, um, like they were restricting, um, a lot of our, a lot of our margin. Yeah. Margins got real tight real quick. Yeah. So, um, that's kind of when that was in November and wrote it out for another couple months. Um, but in January of, you know, 2012, it was kind of like time to time to move on. Yeah, we were incredibly lucky just by happenstance at our firm. We were, I believe, clearing through MF Global, but for whatever reason, switched to Gelber mm. month, like months before this happened. Wow. Um, so that was like nice. you saw something yeah. coming. Seriously. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah, that was quite something. So then That's you, you uh, did like many traders have done and kind of did your own thing or started a partnership? Yeah, a um a former colleague trader who was super sharp guy, always just constantly just making tons of money. Uh had those, left. Those are guys you like to partner and with. And we had, you know, kind of talked about at some point um joining forces or at least kind of getting an office together and sharing strategies. Um and yeah, in January of 12, I decided to, you know, join him and start a partnership with him and I think this is really awesome. You, you started this all in 08. You're making 500 bucks a week. Mm-hmm. You're clerking. You're 1099. You're running probably like a madman, probably working harder than you've ever thought was possible. Yeah. Four years later, you're already starting up your own firm. That's pretty wild. I mean. Yeah. When you when you say it like that, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it was – I think that the our our goal wasn't necessarily to to start a firm, but it was to – But you did it. Yeah. So you, you know, did it. A mental check. At this point, you're just – you're – gung-ho on trading mm-hmm. you know like i'm just trying to get a mental thing oh, yeah. everyone goes through these like phases yeah, like, you're deep dived forth. you're in heavy oh for sure i mean you know even after the close sticking around and uh replaying what happened that day checking you know updating the correlation model and then kind of like prepping for that night and i mean i was essentially checking markets you know However, I could at that time. This is interesting. This is a good point. I think that you know people want to should be recognizing um, whether you're new in this, you've been around this a long time. At this point, you're starting to do pretty well, and you're still working when the markets close. You're still working when things aren't happening. How much time are you putting outside of market hours, outside of trading? How much time are you putting into this? I think after that one, you know, the one fifteen close is super nice because it allows you to do a lot of things. But it also allows you to, you know, explore, you know, fixed income markets or equity markets because those extra hours that they're open while we were closed. Um, but also just trying to optimize, um, you know, execution and really trying to pick out patterns in in the top of book or just like order flow um, was always something that was I found super challenging. Just looking at Globex coming from kind of seeing it in person on the floor. Mm-hmm. So this is the beginning of 2012. Yeah, I'm about to do my uh, weaving of timelines nice. here. So you're <laughs> down on the you're at the you're at the CVOT, right? Mm-hmm. You're at the Chicago Board Trade. You're on the floor. I got my account in January of 2011. So I would just be starting my second year of trading at the shop I was at, which was on the 22nd floor of the Board of Trade. So our paths are separate, only to meet now for this podcast. Wow. How funny wait, how old, that works. old building or new building? Uh, we were in. We had to take two elevators. We were in the atrium. Yeah, atrium. Yeah, mm-hmm. we were in the attachment beyond it. Oh man, seventeenth yeah. floor in the in the atrium. I I have a big fear of heights, and so we were at the top of that atrium. We had that floor up there, and um, there's so so you go into board trade, you go up to the 
12th floor, I think. And then there's a other atrium with like a stone floor. You go to another elevator, you go up another 10 floors. But then it's like an open walkway around there. And I would just be there That's in the scary. middle of the night walking around. That's scary. <laughs> it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking about it in 2012. I'm back off the floor. I'm in the Marine Corps managing my book when I am not deployed or not out in the field. Oh, you trading on walkie-talkies? What's going on here? Uh, cell phones, um, phone calls, a lot of phone call trading. Um, oh. Wasn't carrying big positions, um, but still managing a book, still – Man, I I couldn't let it up either. Did, yeah, did your did your uh, strategies change at all because it was? More, yeah, you know, I went remote? from I went from consistent larger positions, active, mm-hmm. very active, to much slower, much more methodical. Something that's actually carried over consistently for me over my the rest of all my trading stuff that I still do today mm-hmm. is I'll put on a position for a week or two. Um, at very specific times. Sure. So my strategy, simply put, I mean, is I'm looking for a, that big move, hesitation, and a follow through. Yep. Um, I, I run them for a little bit. And so I learned my strategy in, that I do today in a, between about 2012 through 2013. All right, guys. Well, it's 2012. Mern's on the floor. Dan's in Afghanistan? or No, I think I was in Santa boat or in japan at this time you're in uh, you're in the marines there we go i'm on the 22nd floor of the board of trade getting scared on the atrium <laughs> i see yeah, getting scared at the atrium you know you know that's just the way it is so right. i was thinking right now we would maybe cut here mern starting his own firm so this is kind of like getting into the prop trading stuff and i think uh, mern if you'd be so nice as to come join us maybe next week we could talk about sort of um the trials of having your own firm, the changing markets that went on there, and then when you knew it was time to get out. Because I think it's something that everyone should know. I mean, there's no shame in getting out of trading. Yeah. You know, life's too short not to do what you want to be doing. Absolutely. That's the prime advice. So, yeah. Mern, thanks so much for stopping by. Uh, re- great conversation. Really look forward to continuing this next week. Um, awesome. Thanks for having me. This was Yeah, this, this, is, a lot this of fun. has been a blast. All right. So, uh, We'll see you guys uh, next week, and now you'll see me in an outro right now. Guys, thank you for making it to the very end of the Limit Up podcast, presented by Top Step Trader. I'm still here with Kelsey. Hi. How you doing? Pretty good. Uh, you haven't heard the interview yet, but it was probably pretty great, right? Oh, yeah. If Mern's in it, it's about to be amazing. Yeah, Mern, Mern is really, like... If I have children someday, I really hope they grow up to be little Merns and Mernettes. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah, I hope he listens to this so he hears that. It's a really nice compliment to give someone. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't do a market reaction this week, but obviously stocks are at a new high. Do you want to, uh, since you're Dan Hodgman, you want to talk about oil in terms of a truck? Oh, absolutely. Um, let's see. I'm an expert here. Filling up my truck was uh, difficult. That's what you got from me. You sound exactly like Dan Hodgman. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, we'll be back next week with the real Dan Hodgman talking about filling up his pickup. In the meantime, everyone, uh, be sure to join our Facebook community to connect with other traders, uh, rate and subscribe this podcast so we can keep climbing that ladder to uh, domination of the investing subcategory of business on iTunes. And, um, you know, so be sure to come back next week when we'll have a brand new interview with probably still Mern because we had such a long conversation. But in the meantime, it's Thursday, so stay safe, 
Have a great weekend. Namaste and trade well. Thanks, Kelsey. Thanks. This episode produced by Dante32. Futures and Forex trading contain substantial risk and is not for every investor. An investor could potentially lose all or more than their initial investment. Risk capital is money that can be lost without jeopardizing one's financial security or lifestyle. Only risk capital should be used for trading, and only those with sufficient risk capital should consider trading. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results.